0: Welcome to Bizarre Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to Bizarre Podcast. On today's episode we're going to be jumping straight back into the Battersea Poltergeist case. Like I said, this is part two, so if you missed out on part one, I recommend you go back listen to it before you listen to this episode, just so you know where we're at. So without further ado, I give you the Battersea Poltergeist part two. Enjoy. Harold Chibbit was born on February the 19th, 1900, in Islington, North London. He was a very curious man who had a fascination with all things paranormal and also liked a touch of science fiction. Quite fitting, as the two I think actually go hand in hand. He was a very imaginative man and put his talents to use by writing many science fiction stories when he became a member of the London Science Fiction Club. Harold loved investigating strange paranormal activity and his investigations made it possible for him to interview people such as the occultist Alistair Crowley and other people, people who all shared his passion or indeed harnessed a special gift. He even became the founder of The Probe, which was a British group of investigators of psychic and occult phenomena. And the case of the strange poltergeist named Donald that had thrown the Hitchings family into their very own horror movie was a case that interested him very much. But Harold wasn't after fame and fortune. He wasn't after the attention of the press. His interest was genuine. If anything, all Harold wanted was the truth. And if he ever had the opportunity to debunk something, he would. The truth was always more important to him. At first the Hitchings were a bit apprehensive. After all, they had people knocking day and night, claiming that they can help, claiming that they can talk to spirits. Harold Chibbett made no such claim. His intent was to investigate and try to make contact. He gave no guarantee that he could, but he did have a lot of experience in the matter, and this eased the family into trusting Harold. His investigation, of course, would have to be from the start of the haunting, and there was so much he had missed out on. After all, the tabloids were hardly the best source for information. He needed to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, and so the family invited him into the kitchen, where they sat around the table, and he listened intently, as a family retold the story that started with a solitary key. He was a little late to the party, and he had already missed so much. 8th of March, 1956 Over the last few days, the activity was ongoing. Shirley awoke one morning to find her watch was completely crushed on her bedside table. A clock and two photos were found on a mat in front of the fire in the kitchen, and a ball was witnessed flying through the earth, thrown by an invisible force. And of course, the tapping and knocking was ever present, along with strange scratching sounds. But it was on the 8th of March that Donald started to request a one-man audience, from a reporter that had actually visited in the past, a reporter named Michael Kirch. The messages from the poltergeist were tapped out and made into words, and said the following, Get Kirch. I like to get Kirch on his own. I teach him a lesson. I poke him. I come with message later. I get revenge on Kirch. Suffocate him tonight. Save him if you like. I warn you, get him tonight for safety. There was a few days of relentless activity such as a levitating fire poker, the bed shaking, the reappearance of a missing gold cross on a chain and the disappearance of Shirley's favourite pen. And Donald's tapping evolved into tapping out a tune for the family to sing along to. Donald started requesting another reporter's presence by the name of Ronald Maxwell. The family took down persistent tapped out messages throughout the night. Get Maxwell, Kirch is no good. I will set house afire if you don't get Maxwell, so take her. This was followed by three strange balls of light that floated through the air in front of the family. Later on that night, the head of a match was struck by Donald and the match slowly floated through the air towards Shirley. When it reached her, it fell to the ground and slightly burned her eyebrows on the way down. In the early hours, another message was tapped out. Get Maxwell. I just give you taste of what I am going to do, so get Maxwell. I warn you, no one will stop me. It's at this point in the story when the activity seemed to turn quite nasty, when the family found that their bedsheets on the front room bed had burst into flames. Shirley's father Wally suffered a large gash and a nasty burn whilst trying to put out the fire. It's believed that the cottonwally's arm could have been made by the poltergeist, but we cannot be sure of this. Over the next couple of nights, Shirley goes to stay at Aunt Nell's house to have a break from the whole nightmare, but as we have established, wherever Shirley goes, Donald would follow. The first night at Aunt Nell's was quite calm, apart from a few knocking and tapping here and there. The day after, Shirley initially returned to her home at number 63, but by request of Donald, she returned to Aunt Nell's. And that night, Donald was more active, tapping out messages for Aunt Nell to take down. Donald tells Aunt Nell to not fear him. He is here to guard them. That night, Aunt Nell did not sleep well. Her bedsheets were pulled from the bed and objects were thrown all around the room. The very next day, to Aunt Nell's relief, I'm sure, Shirley returned home. 17th of March 1956. Joyce Lewis was a reporter for the South London Advertiser and she was invited to stay the night in Shirley's bed and experience the paranormal activity for herself and she brought with her John Heal, another reporter, to stand watch outside of the door. That night, as Joyce and Shirley get ready for bed, Joyce asks if she may restrain Shirley with insulating tape on her hands and feet to rule out the possibility that Shirley was actually responsible for the paranormal activity. And Shirley agreed, and she was taped up quite securely, and they both settled in for the night. But a good night's sleep was simply not going to happen. As they settled down for bed, all at once, there was a terrible scraping noise that came from underneath the bed. It startled Joyce, and Shirley assured her that everything was okay, and this was just the beginning. Just after midnight, the undersheets of the bed started to rise up of their own accord, and as Joyce pulled them back down, they were quickly pulled back with forceful tug, by invisible hands. A few minutes later, after Joyce had remade the bed, the scraping sound started up again, but this time it seemed even louder and it sounded like it was coming from the head of the bed. The next thing they feel is an icy draft that flows above their feet and their bed sheets are yanked away from the bed. As the hour nears 1am, Joyce is overcome by the sweet smell of violets that then suddenly change to a foul smell, not unlike burning rubber. At around 1.20am, Shirley tells Joyce that she has been scratched on her leg. May I remind you at this point that she is taped up and Joyce was actually holding Shirley's hands and feet with her own. When Joyce examines Shirley's leg, she does indeed see scratch marks. At around 1.30am, Shirley has fallen asleep. Of course, Joyce is still awake when there is an almighty bang on the bed that scared her half to death. Strangely, Shirley sleeps through this even when the bed starts to shake and bounce. At 2.05am, Joyce can feel Donald tickling her ankle, and when she objects, the bed sheets are once again pulled from the bed. At 2.30, Joyce notices that Shirley, who was asleep at the time, is being pulled by the arm out of the bed. Joyce grabs onto Shirley and tries in vain to pull her back into the bed. Shirley awakes at this point, half in and half out of the bed. At around 4am, after a few more hours of tapping, scratching and sheet pulling, they decide to have a tea break. At 4.30am, they are back in bed, and it isn't long before Shirley cries out that someone is touching her feet, and it feels like a strange sensation around her big toe. When they take a look, they discover that Donald has tied a piece of string around Shirley's big toe. This makes them laugh. Shortly after, an exhausted Joyce decided that she had had enough, and she left the house with her story. In the article, Joyce Lewis and John Heal, the second reporter who had been there the whole night, outside the room, we're quite convinced that there was definitely something very strange going on at number 63. For the next few days, the activity increased and the tap out messages became more and more sinister and unsettling. And on occasion, the messages would have to be translated from French into English. One of these words were La Manche, which was translated by Chibit. La Manche translated into Channel, as in the English Channel. This will make more sense a little later. A lot of the messages seem to be nonsense and make no sense, such as, I will do harm to anyone who don't believe in flying saucers, and I come from the atmosphere. Harold Chibbit was curious if the entity could be something other than a poltergeist, maybe it was alien in nature. So Harold asked about space travel and life on other planets, and Donald was more than happy to respond by telling Harold that there was indeed life on Mars, Saturn and Venus. But space travel wasn't the topic of conversation for long when Donald started to make more threats, such as, I will set fire to Nan's bed in night, ready for fire, you don't think I do it, The same night the family discovered the electric stove had been turned on not once but twice, either after being unplugged. The switch was still flipped. The next day, more messages came. You made me angry. I set fire. You can't stop me. You almost die. No escape now. I do not kid. Get out of home for tonight. I set atomic gas off. The next day, pieces of burnt paper are found under Ethel's bed. All of this threatening behaviour went on and on, which included more levitation of objects like a bottle of milk that was thrown at Shirley. Apart from the increase of threats, the activity was nothing new really. But that was all about to change when Donald started to communicate in a brand new way. 22nd of March 1956 It was on this day that Shirley discovered that Donald had actually written her a message by using a blue ballpoint pen and a notebook. The writing was scribbled and was almost unreadable and quite unnerving and downright creepy. The note read, Shirley I come my Shirley. In fact in the future Donald would start to write many letters to the family with strange requests and strange information, but Harold Chibbert could not be sure that Shirley wasn't the one writing the letters, so he placed a pen and writing pad in a room and locked the door and left for the night. On his return to number 63 the next day, he would find nearly 60 letters had been written or scribbled by the poltergeist. Harold kept hold of the key all night, so there was no way for anyone from the family to enter the room, unless, of course, they had a spur key, or somehow got him through a window. But Harold couldn't find any sign anywhere that anyone had entered the room, apart from the letters, of course. Even though Donald had started writing letters, he actually did go back to his old method of tapping from time to time. And on one particular occasion, he insisted that Shirley go and sleep at her Aunt Nell's house in peace. Shirley did so, and she got a good night's rest, uninterrupted, the best night's sleep she had had for a while. However, the next day, the threats once again picked up. And once again, Donald demanded the presence of a certain reporter, like Maxwell. And when the family decided not to play to the whims of the poltergeist, more threats came like Donald threatened to set the house on fire once again, and he also said that he came to destroy the house, and this time, he won't fail. Now, the following all happened over the coming weeks, and it can get a bit repetitive, so I'll just list some of the things that happened. The next night, Donald demands that Shirley sleep with her grandmother, but Ethel wasn't going to be told what to do by anybody, not even a ghost, and she said sternly that that wasn't going to happen. Donald didn't like this one bit, And via the tapping system, the following threatening, insulting messages were taken down. The first message was Donald threatening that if Shirley did not sleep with her grandmother, then he would not leave the family alone. He then said he would tip Nan out of bed. Let's go get silly old cow up. Silly old bugger. She is old battle axe. He even insulted her nose, saying it looked like an overgrown beetroot. These rude insulting messages to our Shirley's grandmother carried on for the next few days, Just like the written letters, Donald also started to be audible, although it was few and far between. On one occasion, Aunt Nell's husband's missing cufflinks reappeared. When Aunt Nell asked Donald if he was responsible for the return of the cufflinks, a faint yes was heard, as though it floated in the air. At this point, Donald was so active that the family had actually started to sleep on the kitchen floor, where they actually felt more safe for some reason. After more communication with Donald, it was established that he wasn't the only entity that liked to visit the family. There was probably three to four entities, two of which were called Mickey and Dopey. And according to Donald, when they made their presence known, Donald had to leave because they used his power. On one occasion, Donald warned the family that Mickey and Dopey were going to start a fire and then informed them that he would have to leave. Donald returned the next day and told the family that the two entities had now left. There was no fire started in the house at night, but on other occasions Donald would threaten to set the house on fire unless this was an entity pretending to be Donald. The activity for the longest time carried on in this manner, threatening to set the house on fire, making a mess by throwing objects, unmaking the beds, ornaments overturned and bizarre requests that Shirley sleep with her grandmother and even make contact with a childhood friend Donald, the child Shirley played with, from next door before he moved away overseas. After more threats to start a fire, eventually there was a fire started on the stove in the kitchen. The electricity was actually turned off, but was mysteriously turned back on, and old rags were burnt up on the stove. Now this fire did actually cause a small amount of damage to the kitchen, and the family did make a claim on the insurance. On the form, when asked about the cause of the fire, it simply read, Poltergeist. The police eventually got involved once again, insisting that Shirley see a psychologist, otherwise she may be taken into care. Shirley was given medication, and she refused to take it. It was seen that Donald also didn't agree with the medication. One day, all the pills that had been subscribed to Shirley were found dissolving in a pudding bowl full of water on the kitchen table, and once again, Shirley insisted it wasn't her doing. Harold Chibit was now a regular visitor, he would arrive on the scene every week or so to take down all the information of the haunting. Harold Chibit was a welcomed addition to the case, he brought with him a sense of calm, he believed the only way to get rid of the spirit was to communicate with it and to find out what it wanted. But at the same time he did consider the possibilities that Shirley or a family member were responsible for the haunting, and did all he could to make sure that he wasn't being made a fool out of. Donald's constant demands for the reporters was a regular part of the haunting now, claiming that if the reporters came, then he would reveal his true identity. Donald also seemed obsessed with arranging a reunion with Shirley and the child Donald who once lived next door. Possibly a romantic reunion. And for some reason, Donald sometimes liked to communicate in French. And on occasion, Donald had actually claimed that he came from France and he was born in 1798 and that he had drowned when young. In his own words, when he was five-teen, possibly meaning fifteen. And then there's a reference to the English Channel. Was it possible Donald drowned as a child in the English Channel? And Donald also mentioned the French word, and you'll have to excuse me here if I've pronounced this wrong, dolphin, which was French for dolphin, but could also mean, in a nutshell, heir to the throne. From all of this, Harold Chibbett came up with the wild notion that Donald could be some kind of French royalty. The fingers. Donald, or whatever entity was coming through at this particular time, just couldn't be trusted. But they could only go off the messages that were received. Now this may seem like some kind of big breakthrough, and Harold Chibbert certainly did believe that. But bear this in mind, as well as French, the entity also claimed to speak, are you ready, Martian. So as you can imagine, it was hard to establish an identity, but the connection with France was ever-present, and it did come across more than once even going as far as to tapping out the song Ferraro Xhaka, and even describing his appearance in life. He said he was five foot high, he had fair hair, blue eyes, and he said he was 34 inches wide. I'm guessing he meant chest size. Eventually, sometime in April, the reporter Kirch returned to the house, as Donald requested, many times. But frustratingly, Donald refused to communicate Directly after the visit the activity started up again and it was starting to take its toll on Shirley's grandmother who was tired of the constant visits from the reporters and the public and the random fires and the flying objects as well as the constant demands that Shirley sleep in her bed and almost falling down the stairs after being pushed on many occasions. But there was one incident that probably made Ethel think enough was enough and that was when she heard the voice of her dead mother speaking to her possibly a cruel prank by Donald, or whatever entity was communicating that day. She decided to move out of the property and go and live with her other daughter, and you would think that this would have pleased the poltergeist, when in fact, Donald demanded that Ethel return. And of course, when she didn't, Donald started to show his anger by tipping paint onto Shirley's leg, throwing items around the house, and threats to set fires started up again, followed by burning embers found on the floor. Donald would later insist that it wasn't him causing the trouble, but it was due to the arrival of a new entity named Old Shaggy Roots, and Donald insisted he was here to protect the family. Sadly, not long after this, Shirley's grandmother had a stroke and passed away in hospital. 15th of May, 1956. Harold had been piecing the French connections together, and had a wild theory that Donald may have been the first son of Louis XVI. When asked, Donald confirmed that this was true, so Harold came up with the conclusion that the poltergeist, Donald, may well have been Louis XVII, who died whilst imprisoned, and died in 1795, two years after his father's execution during the French Revolution. He died at the age of 10. There have been a few conspiracy theories as to if the young prince actually did escape captivity, With this theory in Harold's mind, he came up to the conclusion that Donald may well have been the young heir to the throne, and could possibly have drowned out in the English Channel, trying to escape. I'll admit, this seems a little stretched. I feel that most of the information given by Donald was very jumbled, and sometimes downright strange. For example, none of this actually added up with the dates Donald had given in the past. He once claimed he was born in 1798, three years after the death of Louis Seventeenth, who Donald was now claiming to be. On one occasion, Donald provided a connection between himself and the theatre, even going as far as to including names from the theatre, names of people that actually existed. At the time, this seemed like a breakthrough. It seemed like the poltergeist had provided information that was actually relevant. This is until a TV guide was found with the names of the theatre actors inside, something surely could have quite easily obtained, or even watched the play on TV, and if she was responsible for the tapping noises, she could have passed on this information from the TV Guide. Now there is the other possibility that the family wasn't dealing with one entity, but many. After all, Donald had already mentioned three other entities, Mickey, Dopey and Old Shaggy Roots. And as time went on, he also included James Dean, the actor who died in a car wreck in 1955. The haunting went on like this for the rest of the year, from month to month, constantly uninterrupted. 1956, the first year, seems to be the most active year, that's why I've been reading out the dates to give you a sense of how much occurred between such a small period of time. The following year of 1957 was still very active, but there were noticeable periods of time where the activity just didn't happen for months. But there was no mistaking that Donald was still there. And it was like this up until 1964 when the family moved into a new house and of course Donald followed them. Through the years Shirley found it hard to actually bring a boyfriend home. Some even ran away from the house in terror as Donald made his presence known to Shirley's new suitor. She claims to this day that the poltergeist stole her teenage years. But in 1964 Shirley met her now husband Derek and they both moved away to the south coast in 1957. But this time, Donald decided to stay with the rest of the family. But Shirley did still receive messages from Donald now and again, informing her what her parents were up to back home, and vice versa. In 1968, Kitty received the last letter from Donald, simply saying, I'm leaving. And that was that. That was the end of the haunting. Donald had simply vanished just as he had mysteriously appeared. In a strange turn of events, Kitty actually started to miss Donald. It felt like something was missing from her life and she couldn't help but mourn the ghostly visitor that had hung around for 12 years. She was actually quite upset, although the rest of the family were quite happy about it. Years later in the 1980s, while Shirley was attending a craft fair, she was approached by a medium who informed her that she had a spirit of a small boy in a blue suit with red hair following her around. And he had a message to give her. The message was, I'm sorry for all the trouble I caused. This came to a shock to Shirley. You see, years earlier, Harold Chibbert was actually visiting France when he found a postcard. Upon the postcard was a picture of the young Prince Louis, and he posted this to Shirley and her family. On the postcard, the young prince had a blue suit on, blue eyes, and a head full of strawberry blonde hair. Harold Chibbert went to his grave believing that the poltergeist was none other than the young prince, and he hoped to one day publish a book. Unfortunately, that never happened. But if it wasn't for the detailed information taken down by Harold Chibbert and then passed on to Shirley upon his death, the version of the story would probably have been very different with certain parts missing. And before I end today's episode, I will say this. This haunting went on for over 12 years. The amount of information that Harold Chibbert took down was incredible. There was so much of it, far too much to cover in a podcast. Most of my information comes from the book The Poltergeist Prince of London The Remarkable True Story of the Battersea Poltergeist and that was written by Shirley Itchins and James Clark. This was a very detailed book and there is a lot, lot more information in that book than I have actually managed to squeeze into this episode. I've just kind of picked what I consider to be the most helpful bits to get this story across in podcast form. I also used a timeline of events that was provided by 14 Times Magazine, which was very, very helpful because, believe it or not, if you search for this case online, you will find very little on it. The number one search that comes up is for the Danny Robbins podcast, where he did a nine-part special on the Battersea Poltergeist, but it was more like a dramatisation of the thing, like like a podcast play, and it was very good. I did enjoy it, but... I wanted to do my own research. I didn't want to just listen to his podcast, but I do suggest that you go out and find that podcast and give it a listen because it was very enjoyable. I did enjoy it a lot. That's all for today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other, and I will see you very, very soon. Don't have nightmares.